The, the stronger the leader, the more ardent the passion's going to run on both sides of the equation. That was Miyoko Skinner on what leadership looks like. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Last week, we talked with Miyoko Skinner, the former CEO of a quarter-billion-dollar company. As an undisputed pioneer in the vegan industry, an Asian-American female entrepreneur, and a vocal advocate for animals, I wanted to hear her thoughts on leadership, in particular, what leadership looks like. Here's what she had to say. You know, there's all the usual things you have to be, you have to learn to listen to people, you have to empower them. And sometimes you have to make hard decisions that are for the benefit of the greater whole. In some, a leader listens to people. A leader empowers people. A leader is willing to make hard and sometimes unpopular decisions. Naturally, Miyoko's reflection on leadership made me wonder whether I have what it takes to be an effective leader. As we've talked about before on this podcast, there are lots of different styles of leadership and sometimes can be confused with toxic leadership. Also, context matters. What works in some settings may not work in others. For instance, Miyoko notes that being a corporate leader isn't quite the same as being a community leader. However, I think there are certain qualities that are universally desirable in all leaders, regardless of whether they are the captain of a Fortune 500 company or an actual ship. When I was a fifth-year associate and being considered for senior counsel, the pivotal rung between associate and partner, I received the first slightly negative evaluation from a partner I'd been working with since I started at the firm. Jim had only ever praised my work ethic, sharp writing, and thorough research skills until that year. We'd been working on a big arbitration, and he'd put me in charge of damages and expert testimony. And when I say he put me in charge, I mean he literally threw the ball at me and expected me to run with it. He wasn't like other partners I'd worked with, who checked in every couple days, asked for my work product weeks before it was needed, sat on it until the last minute, and then proceeded to redo all of it because there wasn't enough time to provide me with any meaningful feedback before I redid my own work. Instead, when Jim said, I'm putting you in charge of damages, he expected you to figure out what documents you'd need. He expected you to organize them in a way that made it easy to prepare exhibits and deposition outlines. He expected you to identify the witnesses, and he expected you to subpoena and schedule the depositions of said witnesses. He expected you to get everything to your experts, and he expected you to work with co-defense counsel, experts, and fact witnesses to help craft the damages report and otherwise get ready for trial. I did not know this about Jim when he said, Joanne, I'm putting you in charge of damages. Jim didn't tell me what to do, so I didn't do much. <laughs> first. Eventually, he figured I needed a little more instruction and subsequently resumed his role in our working relationship, i.e. the boss, because that's what I thought a good boss does. They tell me what to do and I, as a good associate, do it. However, Jim didn't quite see it that way. 
and he made that clear during my mid-year evaluation. Quote, Joanne needs to start taking more initiative and ownership over her projects. I remember when I read that in the draft consensus evaluation that was provided to me about 20 minutes before my review, I sat at my desk and I read those words over and over again. Jim's assessment stung. It wasn't difficult reading between the lines. Joanne's not leadership material, and as such, she's not ready to be minted senior counsel, much less partner. I was halfway through the year before what I hoped would be a promotion, and it wasn't looking good. I had about 20 minutes before I was scheduled to meet with my department head, Mike, along with my mentor to discuss my consensus review. It was tempting to rest my head on the worn mahogany of the desk I'd been working at for nearly five and a half years while coming up with all the bad names I could call Jim in the privacy of my own brain. It was also tempting to get up, walk over to Dan's office next door, where I knew my bitter complaints about the unfairness of Jim's assessment would be received with open arms by the associate who started at the firm with me back when we were just interns together. Because make no mistake, I was pissed. I based my entire job on taking ownership. I took pride in my work, owned up to my mistakes, and even took the heat when those who were lower on the totem pole, like paralegals, project assistants, etc., bungled a project. My job was to give my client, and in this case, it was the partner, Jim, a flawless product. And in my view, I delivered. If he was displeased with it, that was his own doing. He should have been clearer with his specifications. But the word initiative needled me. However indignant I felt about his evaluation, I was unwilling to let go of the truth in that part of it. Jim was right. I didn't take initiative. Now, to be fair, I didn't know he wanted me to. After years of being trained to perform excellently at the tasks assigned to me, I hadn't realized that it was now my job to also figure out what those tasks should be. Thus, instead of storming into my department head's office, ready to duke it out with Jim as if I'd ever, <laughs> I smiled as Mike read the sentence out loud and replied, I get where Jim's coming from. And believe me, I'll be working on it. Because there was no freaking way that Jim was going to take away my promotion. I had a meeting scheduled with Jim that afternoon. I marched into his office with grim determination. Before he started rattling off all the things I needed to do in our arbitration, I interrupted him. I'd come prepared with my own list, and I breezed through it like it was what I'd always done during these sessions. I will never forget the look on his face, how his initial deer in headlights dissolved into something like bemusement, and I was okay with that. In fact, I relished the opportunity to prove just how much initiative I could take and that doing so didn't begin and end with reading through the bullets on my legal pad. In six months, Jim submitted the following year-end evaluation. Joanne has really started to take initiative and shown leadership on our matters. And I made senior counsel a few years after that, I made partner. You might think at this point that this story is about my own leadership skills, but actually, I shared this story to highlight Jim's leadership. 
He could have very easily said, you know, I want to work with someone who takes more initiative. I'm going to just kick Joanne to the curb and find someone else. This is what happens most often in the cutthroat, excuse me, <laughs> free market world of big law. Or he could have just said nothing at all at my review, continued to ply me with empty praise that would have, yes, made it a lot easier to secure my spot as senior counsel, but would have likely guaranteed that I wasn't the kind of lawyer I wanted to be when I took on that coveted title. And worse yet, I might not have ever known just how good a leader I actually was. Can you think of any good examples of leadership in your own life? If so, I'd love to hear from you. I wanna hear your stories about what leadership looks like to you. Hit the link in the show notes below and let me know what you think. Next up, as you all know, every couple of weeks, I take on a question by one of our listeners. And this week, Viba asks, Joanne, being driven and successful was really important to me as a kid, and it got me into an Ivy. Once I got here, I had direction. I did internships, worked as a TA, and got a pretty good GPA but I have no full-time offers like my friends. The market for data science is really dire. I've been applying hardcore for five months to over 300 jobs. I've workshopped my resume, sent out cold connects for networking, and do five coffee chats a week. It's killed my mental health to see everyone except me have their post-grad plans stable. I've been in tears over anxiety regarding the future and struggle with doing tasks for myself because I don't feel I deserve to take care of myself while I can't secure a full-time job after graduation. I feel like an utter failure. Have you ever had to deal with feeling like such a failure you can't even get out of bed or self-sabotaging because you have a deep down feeling that you're not worth it anyway? Viva. Wow. First of all, I want to thank you so much for being so vulnerable to me and the Are You Ready community. What you said, I feel like an utter failure. Well, it hit me like a rock in the face. I know every single person listening to this right now has felt this exact way at one point in their lives, and I am certainly no exception to that rule. Let me start with some advice before I answer your questions at the end. First of all, you have to stop comparing yourself to everyone. You say you want to be a data scientist, then you must know that the output is only as good as the input. As an IV student, you must also know that social media, LinkedIn, and whatever else you're using as your source data are about as reliable as your mom's gossip about auntie's work friend's daughter's boyfriend. Posting is an overtly performative action. I know this because I'm a professional poster. As such, most people post things with the objective of making themselves look and feel good. You are working off of incomplete, biased, and possibly even tampered data. Would you accept the source data when you get that full-time offer? No, of course you wouldn't. So why do you do so now? I say this as someone who chronically compares myself to others, especially other Asian American women. I also say this as someone who readily falls into the trap I'm trying to protect you against, elevating social media to the completely undeserved status as a source of credible information. Scarcity mentality 
the not entirely unfounded notion that there aren't enough spaces for all of us, especially if we don't look like our white male counterparts, can trigger exactly the reaction you are experiencing. Crippling anxiety, self-sabotage, and ultimately, depression. Peering at your, well, peers, and seeing them take up a quickly diminishing number of spots can understandably cause severe anxiety and undermine your self-worth. Because at some point, somewhere, someone or something made you feel like your value was best measured by success. A few weeks ago, I did a podcast on habit formation, and in it, I mentioned a phrase coined by New York Times bestselling author of Atomic Habits, James Clear. He calls it the plateau of latent potential. In a nutshell, the plateau of latent potential, or pulp, (laughs) refers to that time period during which a person is attempting to achieve something, like developing a good fitness habit, believes that progress should be as straight as an arrow. When it isn't, i.e. when it dips below the expected trajectory and it stays there for an extended period of time, there's a delta between our expectation and reality. He calls this the valley of disappointment. And I've actually included a really nifty little graph to show you where this valley resides. At some point, though, reality snaps back and crosses the line of expectation and even outperforms that line of expectation. Hopefully, this gives you some encouragement to keep trying, even if it feels like you've made no progress. That said, you yourself describe the data science market as, quote, really dire. Therefore, I'm assuming you already know this, but I'll share this just in case you don't. Despite a rather overly optimistic projection by the U.S. Bureau of Labor, there was actually a 26% drop in data science job postings year over year from 2021 to 2022. The overall data science job market experienced a 15% contraction during that same period. And data scientists are actually receiving substantial demotions and concomitant downgrades in their pay, for example, from $200,000 as an annual salary to $120,000. I mean, both great salaries, but there's no dispute that that's a huge decrease. I'm no expert, but I imagine that this unexpected shrinking in the data science industry goes hand in glove with the world's halting and unsteady recovery from a global pandemic as well as our sudden awakening to the utility of AI. Back in the day, most people didn't even graduate college with a job in hand. I didn't. I realized that times have changed, but maybe not for the better. And by that, I mean not for the better of you. It's time to take a step back from endless external work, i.e. resume workshops and coffee chats, and do a little internal work. What are the things that make you happy? Things that have nothing to do with achievement. I'll use myself as an example. I really enjoy french fries, watching a good Korean drama, hanging out with my little brother. Now, do you have your list in mind? You're a doer. Go ahead and do them. As you probably know, I'm a long distance runner. And when people hear that I'm training for a marathon, they assume I run every single day. Not so. If I were to run every single day, I definitely wouldn't be running any marathons. My body would not be able to handle much more than maybe a few miles a day. Your career, Viba, 
It's a fucking marathon, the longest one you may ever run. And there will be a lot of pitfalls and detours along that path. If you don't take this time to rest and beating yourself up and comparing yourself to others, yeah, that's not resting. You will never be the Viva you know you could be when you cross that finish line. Finally, in answer to your questions, yes, I have felt like such a failure I couldn't get out of bed. And yes, I have definitely felt unworthy of success, whether it was hard won or easy. Right before I finally decided to invest in the Korean vegan full-time, my phone was ringing off the hook with potential new clients. The single largest Bitcoin case had just filed for Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code, and given my unique background as both a bankruptcy and crypto lawyer, I was on a very short list of those being considered as lead counsel for the biggest creditor constituency in the case, the Creditors Committee. I was also the only woman. Like you, I am also driven, and when I put my mind to something, I usually get what I want. But, long story short, I didn't get it. I literally locked myself in my closet and I started to cry. It was like all the insidious voices that told me, you're a fake, you're not a real lawyer, you can never succeed at this, and one day the world will discover that you're a sham. That voice had been released from a box I'd worked for 17 years to keep locked up and buried. I could barely bring myself to go to work the next five days. My partners, they had all tried to warn me, you very rarely win a committee case on your first try, Joanne, or even though you totally knocked it out of the park, Joanne, it's still a long shot. But I thought they were all wrong and that of course I would win the case because I knew I deserved it. And you know what the twist in the dagger was? I had a brief chat with the guy who actually won the engagement and he said, yeah, I don't really know why I got this case. Almost a full year later, my book would come out as an instant New York Times bestseller. I would withdraw from partnership at my firm and start a podcast and newsletter, one that landed me in your inbox. So yes, Viva, I have not only felt like a failure, I have failed with a capital F. And thank God I did. If you have any questions on which you'd like some advice, it could be about your career, it could be about your love life, it could even be just about food, hit the link below and ask Joanne. All right, we are now on to my parting thoughts. I was actually in Chicago for a few days last week for work, and I remember I woke up in the hotel one morning and I looked out the windows and I saw the L slithering through the city, and it reminded me of this thing I wrote many years ago, something that still resonates with me today, even if the characters in my life have changed. I'll bet there are a lot of times when you look back and think about something you thought of many, many years ago, and then you compare that to what's going on today, you'll find, wow, a lot has changed, but some things haven't changed at all. And thank God for that. So here we go. I thought of you today while I was stowing my Celine in the locker room at the gym. I clipped the key over the same spot I always do, over my left hip. And even as I did, I thought that I think too much of you, particularly in these idle moments. 
I thought of you on Thursday, too, while I was driving home. It was past 6.30, and the evening was beginning to settle in, even as the sunset was thundering and crashing all around like an unhappy child at bedtime. I was driving towards the tracks, west on Hubbard Street, and the L gleamed like some sort of perverse night. It was picturesque, and it made me think of you. I'm not exactly sure why. Perhaps I merely wondered whether you'd ever see an elevated train trapped inside a bursting yoke, how it dripped onto traffic, rendered pale and fragile by twilight's bokeh. There was a young woman with a long neck, her dark hair tied up in a loose bun. She wore sunglasses and a sleeveless A-line dress with a tote slung loosely over her right shoulder. I couldn't see the freckles from where I was, but I knew she had them because she was precisely the type of girl who would have freckles that you would like to kiss. And I was saddened a little, because I don't have freckles on my shoulder. Not at all. I wanted to shout through the window, you could have been beautiful, but I knew that it would get lost and trampled by the train. So I thought of you instead. Thought of how you would have surely thought her beautiful even as I did not. I thought of you again later that night, right before I went to sleep. I have removed the pillowcases from my pillows and my hands slipped between the cotton, chilled from the window I'd left open all day. I thought of how you'd smell, how the oils from your skin would reside in cotton sheets days after you'd lain there, how black and white photographs would capture that stubble on your chin but not the scent of your sorrow. I fell asleep with lavender coaxing me into dreams of dark hands. Maybe yours. Maybe another's. I'm not sure. I thought of you again at work the other day. I thought of deserts and tall buildings made of aged stone, sand inside the cracks, a sea that was more green than blue, and men whose laughter bear broken teeth and lovers' tears. A green ribbon pulling my heart into something endless and terrible and worthwhile.